We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. We would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are gathering to record this episode. We recognise the ongoing contributions that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are making to the sciences. You are listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast that brings you independent and interesting STEM, science, technology, engineering and maths content from Tasmania. The show is supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium youth station. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on all of the good community radio things that you can get involved with. My name is Neve Chapman and I'm joined in the studio by my co-host Meredith Castles and our expert guest on the phone, Sean Krasansky. So, Meredith, right. you are our expert in tech. What are we going to be talking about today? So, Sean and I are PhD students in the discipline of ICT at UTAS, um, Information, Communication and Technology. Um, and Sean works with drone tech, um, creating and designing, and he's doing a project in forestry and conservation in Tasmania. Cool. So, Sean, can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing with drones in relation to forestry? Because this sounds like a novel application. So, what I'm doing with drones is, so conventionally, uh, drones and other remote sensing technologies or technologies that use uh, various sensing devices to map objects from a distance. Uh, so usually they would be operated above the forest canopy uh, because for that uh, application, it makes a lot of sense to cover large areas uh, by simply flying above the canopy. But what I'm looking at is trying to improve upon some of those uh, shortcomings of such uh, above canopy approaches uh, already are existing today. So uh, above canopy does tend to struggle when you have particularly dense foliage in the upper story of the canopy and you simply can't see through it. Uh, even with some of the best laser technology, they still struggle to actually get through all of that uh, dense vegetation. And it means that we can't really map stems out very accurately from the uh, above the canopy. So you're saying, Sean, that essentially current drone technology operates above the forest canopy because there's too much leaves, branches, and other types of natural foliage that would disrupt the flying or the visibility of the drone? Because when I think of a drone, I think of photography and, mm-hmm. and seeing those beautiful above forest canopies. But So what kind of challenges does that foliage pose for the technology? So if you're trying to map the canopy from above, uh, all of that foliage does prevent you from physically seeing down below the canopy uh, when it's quite dense. So what I'm working on is to try to uh, fly drones in areas where it is particularly dense and you can't capture some of that rich understory information that you might otherwise want. So uh, what it involves is a lot of robotics technology because as you could imagine, when you're trying to fly a drone under the canopy, there are an awful lot of things that you can crash into. Uh, So poses a lot of interesting robotics challenges. So do you mean that you don't mean robotics as in the the arms and legs? That's what I think of with robots. You mean like the actual robotics coding and design of how it deals with and processes those types of physical barriers and hazards that it might interact with? I guess robotics is a very extremely broad field. Um, So any kind of drone would arguably be called a robot. so it doesn't just have to be any kind of conventional robot arm or anything. Um, 
robot is a very diverse term, but any kind of electromechanical system that is quite moderately intelligent uh, could probably be considered a robot. I did not know that we could consider drones robots. That's pretty cool. Yes. In particular, a lot of the technologies that I'm using uh, are mostly robotics technologies. So, for example, being able to uh, map a location, I'll also use that location to tell you where you are uh, is quite an interesting problem, uh, which is very prevalent in uh, robotics technology, but it's less common so much in the remote sensing field. So why drones, Sean? What drew you to drones in the first place for research? Ever since I was very young, uh, I've been very much interested in flying things. And from pretty much as soon as I knew that what an engineer did, that was what I wanted to become. And uh, all through my undergraduate degree of engineering, I had wanted to learn how to build drones, but I never really had the time or the money to do that during that time. Uh, so once I got my first full-time job, which wasn't in engineering, I decided I now had the time and uh, a little bit of money to put aside to build those drones and teach myself. And so I used that as a way to enter into the engineering field. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So it, it sounds like you're using a really novel approach to look at something quite interesting, but can we clarify that you're not actually like a forest ecologist or like you're not researching the information that you're getting from the forest, your your research is focused on the drone technology. My research is actually a bit of a real mix of different things. So I am primarily, I guess, an engineer, uh, an engineer mapping the forest. Uh, but the data I'm collecting and processing can be used in ecological applications. So in particular, what I'm trying to do is essentially develop a system that can capture extremely rich data sets. So you essentially have a fully 3D uh, model of a section of forest, which you can put in virtual reality systems and everything and walk around and it will give you the exact same impression as if you were there in the forest. And then try to turn that data into something that is useful uh, for ecologists or um, forest researchers, forestry companies, Mm. Uh, conservation groups, all sorts of uh, groups like that. So do you have any um, knowledge now about what some of those applications are? I mean, instantly when you were describing that, we're all in a bit of a period of working more from home than usual, and we don't want to talk too much about that. But, you know, that sounds like a beautiful thing to be able to do even from a, a VR, virtual reality, or what's the IR one? AR. AR. Uh, augmented reality. Yeah, you know, that sounds like a beautiful thing to be able mm. to do from that type of a perspective. So uh, can you elaborate further on any of the future applications of what some of that footage could be or data could be used for? Uh, forestry sites, for example. Uh, trips, slips and fall hazards are really prevalent. So uh, it's one of the most common causes of injury for forest workers. Um, and frankly, nobody wants to walk through two metre high blackberry bushes. Uh, it's horrible. So uh, that's where this sort of technology can really come into its own. Absolutely. And this research, so that's in forestry, and you mentioned um, the technology can be used for worker safety um, and just for remote sensing. Um, can your research, so could you apply this in another field other than forestry, do you think? Do you have any knowledge of how Certainly. this tech could work? Yeah. So um, interestingly, I'm borrowing, so for... Um, where this project originally 
started from was I was actually working on a project as a volunteer uh, developing drones that fly underground in a mine, which could go into areas where it was too dangerous to send humans. So you fly in the drone, you collect a map, and using that map, you can estimate whether it, uh, you can give that map to a geotechnical engineer and they might be able to assess it and decide whether they need to blast again to make it safer or whether they are happy that it's uh, okay to proceed. So that was where, when I was working on that, that was when my PhD supervisors that I have now approached me. And that's how this project uh, spun off from that. So the technologies that you use for mapping an underground mine is very similar to what you might map, might need for mapping a forest under the canopy. They're both very challenging environments. Excellent. So you've been listening to That's What I Call Science. Today we're talking about drones. I'm Neve Chapman. I'm joined in studio with Meredith Castles. And on the phone, we have our expert guest, Sean Krasansky. Stick with us while we delve into this topic a little bit further. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and today we're talking about drones. My name is Neve Chapman. I'm joined in studio with my co-host, Meredith Castles. And on the phone, we have our expert guest, Sean Krasansky. So we've been talking about drones, which is something I know very little about. We had a little bit of a teaser introduction to Sean's work in our first part, but I'm really starting to wonder what are the technical aspects that go into this. But Meredith, you've got to help me out here because I don't even know where to start. (laughs) Happy to. Um, There is so much. Um, (laughs) So. So a little bit about so a little bit of a segue um, uh, from the previous segment, which was Sean was talking about um, using drones because they're able to not necessarily replace humans, but they're a great way to be able to um, introduce this kind of tech to uh, remove some of the danger aspects and some other aspects. And for example, one of my projects is to not be able to step on historic sites when I'm mapping them. So that would be good. Yeah, it's kind of fun, <laughs> actually. And um, but yeah, it's, it's even just for a respect point of view. So always to augment the human, not to replace. Um, so Sean, we talked a little bit about what you're doing and just delving a little bit more into the technical aspect of the the actual sure. tech behind. Can I know you're using LIDAR, which stands for Light Detection and Ranging. Can you just explain mm-hmm. a little bit about what LIDAR is for the listeners, um, how it might sure. um, differ to things like radar, which they might know about? Sure. So LIDAR, or also known as Light Detection and Ranging, uh, so it's essentially a lot of people will have some idea of what a laser scanner is. So LIDAR is essentially a laser scanner. But the way it works is quite analogous to a sonar. Um, so a lot of people have a bit of an intuitive understanding of how sonar works. You make a noise, it takes a while for that noise to go to an object and bounce back to you. And with that, you can work out a distance from something. LIDAR is much the same, except instead of working at the speed of sound, it's working at the speed of light. So it pulses a laser and that laser has a time that it takes to bounce off an object and return to you. And since we already know the speed of light, uh, we can, if we precisely measure the time that it takes for that laser to bounce off an object and come back, we know how far away that uh, object was. And essentially the LiDAR I'm using, for example, is doing that 1.2 million times per second. So it's a tremendous amount of data and it gives you a very rich three-dimensional data set. 
which is actually quite hard to deal with in terms of how much data it gives you. Um, that's one of the bigger challenges of uh, using technologies such as LiDAR. So is that kind of how, um, isn't it beluga whales and bats, they use sonar to um, send out a sound and then because they have really poor vision Mm -hmm. so that they can then figure out what's around them, what obstacles they have to pass, et cetera. So in this instance, would it it give you like such a detailed breakdown with all of those data points that you can literally work out peaks and troughs of surfaces rather than just a blunt, there is an object to my left, you can actually see rough sizes and shapes based on what type of data that's giving you back so that it can actually make a relatively informed decision of how to avoid those things? Certainly. So uh, in terms of the accuracy and level of detail that you're getting uh, with such systems, uh, it will depend on the LIDAR that you're using. Uh, If you're talking about some of the fixed LIDARs that sit on a tripod that are commonly used in surveying, those can have uh, sub-millimeter accuracy in some situations. So it's quite incredible uh, how much detail you can capture with some of those. However, with the type of LiDAR that I'm using, which flies or is mounted on a drone and moves around a lot, you might get maybe five centimeters uh, of ranging error. So it's enough that you certainly can make out a person and see their facial features, but you wouldn't resolve them into a great uh, level of detail. So if you're using LiDAR to help you map under canopy in forests, is that mm-hmm. five centimetre error margin, how does that actually impact when, oh, hopefully that's not the right word, <laughs> um, is it for mapping to let you know where the drone is in relation to the canopy or what's the actual application of your LiDAR scan? So I'm actually using the LiDAR for the robotics um, side of mapping. So you can, I guess, think of the mapping systems as two separate systems on the drone that I've built. So for robots and for that robot to eventually navigate the forest in uh, autonomously, it needs to be able to look at what is around it extremely quickly uh, and understand where it is relative to the environment. So be that flying between trees or whatnot, um, it's got to be able to track where it is. And that's what LiDAR is really good for on drones. So that five to 10 centimeter error or so, it doesn't matter if you're using it purely for navigation, which in my case I am. Uh, But for the actual measurement of trees, that kind of error would matter. So for this reason, my tree map is actually generated using a process called photogrammetry, which uses a number of photos taken at different points to stitch them together to make a three-dimensional model. That's pretty cool. So it sounds like you're collecting huge amounts of data. How is all of that data transferred and stored? So we uh, have very high-powered storage on board, uh, which can accept the crazy amounts of data that it's uh, generating. So for example, in a 12-minute flight, I might end up with 80 or 90 gigabytes of data. But In that raw form of the data, it's not useful as such. You need to process that data. And as you process that data, it becomes far smaller. Mm. Can we talk about drones more broadly? Because I actually don't know anything about drones. So, um, you know, I've seen really basic drones that are essentially just glorified remote control cars. And then this sounds like a fairly relatively independent type of setup. Once you actually program it, it can 
process information and do some amount of decision making. Um, mm-hmm. So how, like, if you take us back right to the most basic principle of a drone, let's say one that's used for photography purposes, how do they work and operate? And then step us through to the more complex ones. Well, to start with, uh, your typical drone might have four uh, motors. So these motors, uh, I guess, they're a naturally unstable aircraft. So you actually need a computer on board to fly them. So unlike a plane, um, which is able to glide on its own with no input from the pilot generally, uh, a drone cannot do that. It needs an onboard computer, which will be continuously calculating uh, corrections to spin the motors faster and slower to try to adjust how it's flying. Why does uh, it have such an unstable design? The advantage of drones is that they're extremely simple mechanically. Ah, so, okay. uh, for example, a plane, you would have quite a large number of moving parts or a helicopter, even more. Uh, a simple quadcopter, for example, so that's a drone with four motors on it. Uh, that only has four moving parts generally at its most basic level. So it's extremely simple as far as mechanical design. And then you make up for that uh, instability by using computers, which have come such a long way that they're so cheap now. Uh, you can very easily apply this. Okay. And then so the computer that kind of guides it or steers it ranges from something that's a remote control where you're uh, an operator potentially on the ground and using visual cues and that type of thing to control it via some sort of remote control device. I don't even know. Mobile phones and everything. Yeah. Yeah. I don't even know how remote control devices work. (laughs) 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 Uh, But then you could have something that's more autonomous and it's pre-programmed based for set environments. Yes. So a lot of the uh, drones that you can actually buy off the shelf at the various electronics stores that we have, a lot of those are actually quite autonomous already. Your average DJI drone, for example, uh, if it can return to the home point, which a lot of them can, uh, that's arguably an, uh, a level of autonomy. Now, it's quite a basic level of autonomy, that, where it's relying upon GPS signals uh, to track where it is uh, in space. Whereas if you try to do that and use that same approach under the forest canopy, uh, you can't always get GPS signal down there. So that's why you have to work with much more advanced and more difficult uh, robotics technologies such as LiDAR to try to be able to navigate under there without colliding into objects. Just to give them a little bit of perspective, you're talking about quadcopters, so your standard drone with four propellers. Mm -hmm. What's yours? Uh, Mine is a hexacopter. (laughs) Uh, So hex meaning six, so it's actually got six propellers. How big is yours? Can you just... Give us a general uh, idea. Yeah, I was thinking like shoebox size. I just mm. kind of assumed. I don't know why. That's what my brain went to. No, the one I'm working with is probably, if you include the absolute greatest extents of it, almost a metre by a metre. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, wow, a that's pretty big. That. Mm. Is and it noisy? It's reasonably big. noisy, but not, not enough that you would need hearing protection or anything. So the reason for that is that uh, the larger your propellers are, it's actually more efficient. Uh, so if you make your propellers larger... Um, you can fly for a longer time uh, with carrying more sensors and payload and everything. Mm-hmm. So it's a bit of a delicate engineering optimization uh, to do to try to design them from scratch mm-hmm. because you've got to trade off flight time versus how much weight you can carry with the drone uh, 
and all sorts of other things. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science and we've been talking about drones. Stay with us as we wrap up and talk about some of the future and other applications of drone technology. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and today we are talking about drones. My name is Neve Chapman, and I'm joined in studio with my co-host, Meredith Castles. And on the phone, we have our expert guest, Sean Krasansky. So we've been talking about drones, Meredith, and I've learned heaps already, but I think we have some burning questions. Mm, definitely. Just segueing into what you were talking about in terms of forestry, what do you actually see as the future of drone tech for forestry in Tasmania? I can certainly see... As we go forward towards autonomous cars and everything, uh, the way I envision my work going in, I guess, further future is that you might imagine an autonomous truck that has a fleet of drones uh, which sit on the back of it. It can autonomously go along the forest roads, for example, uh, park at the various spots, and then the swarm of drones can go off, map an area, come back and recharge, and move on to the next area. So you could do all of that uh, completely without any input from a human. And that's quite foreseeable within, I'd say, a decade. Wow, that's pretty cool. Are there any other examples of drone technology being used in fields outside of forestry in Tasmania? Because I think I've heard of a really interesting project that was using it for mapping cliff surfaces and looking at different species from a guy in Launceston. Um, So I'm just wondering if you know of any other ways that they're being used in our little innovative island state. So I believe they're being used for characterizing some of the Antarctic vegetation. In Tasmania, we have quite a strong uh, base of Antarctic researchers. Uh, there are some researchers going uh, going down to Antarctica who are uh, mapping areas of some of the Antarctic moss, I believe. Uh, so that's an interesting one. I couldn't tell you much in the way of detail on it, uh, but that's one interesting application uh, that Absolutely. comes to mind. Cool. So we always like to finish by talking about the future, and I'm wondering... What do you see as the key challenges that have to be overcome for wider use and uptake and more reliable use of drone technology? Fundamentally, we need a bit more research into uh, the more advanced levels of autonomous flight. Uh, That's all coming at leaps and bounds right now. So it's just a matter of time before they become extremely advanced in that regard. Uh, Legislation is a tricky one. That, I think, really holds back uh, drone technology that we can use. As, for example, uh, with my research in flying below the canopy, uh, if I could fly the drone with goggles on, uh, doing what's called first-person view flying, I could actually very easily control the drone from, say, the roadside and fly into the forest and map it and come back without crashing. But because I have to fly uh, what's called line of sight or using my eyes uh, as the reference for to physically watch the drone as I control it, uh, it's actually a lot harder to judge whether you're going to crash into a tree or not going to crash into a tree, uh, even as far as 10, 15 metres away from you. So legislation, I think, is one of the most tricky parts uh, and the most limiting factor in this regard. But you've got to also consider that uh, if you... You do need some level of legislation to try to protect the public from people misusing it. Yeah, you mentioned first-person view and legislation there. What is first-person view? Even though, for example, I have a a remote pilot license, which is a license to fly uh, drones, essentially, 
I'm still not legally able to fly a drone through goggles. Think of a virtual reality goggle set mm -hmm. and you put that on over your head and you essentially look through the camera of the drone. When you've been flying it for a little while, it's something of an out-of-body experience. You kind of forget where your body is and your brain kind of thinks that you are where the drone is. It's quite an interesting feeling. Sounds but you're cool. essentially seeing the drone's view. And why, why is it that that is such a problem with legislation? I believe there are concerns about uh, if people are flying this, they're not actually watching where the drone is and they might go near an aircraft, for example. What do you think is the biggest downside to this technology? What is the drawback? Because it's really easy to get excited about it, but what are some of the things we need to be mindful of? Any powerful technology, we also have to consider that uh, it's powerful for both good and bad. Um, so, of course, there are plenty of dark ways you can think of uh, an autonomous fleet of drones, uh, <laughs> yep. ways that you could use an autonomous fleet of drones for terrible things. Uh, so some of the, I guess, most likely uh, ways that it will negatively influence our society, perhaps, at least in the shorter term, would certainly be through the automation of jobs. So, for example, even my research, um, there are aspects of it which will automate away the jobs of someone who goes out and physically measures uh, with a tape measure uh, trees, for example. So it's easy to see that would displace a number of workers uh, once it becomes sufficiently advanced and affordable. So there is that side to it. So the automation uh, pros and cons. So on one hand, you're getting workers out of uh, some of these jobs, which some people may not find interesting necessarily. Uh, or may not be safe for them. But on the other hand, uh, you're able to achieve a lot more in a given amount of time. So everything is a trade-off in this regard. Yeah, it's a really interesting question to pose, like how do we essentially provide safer working environments through technology, through automation, but then how do we also support people to like live and earn a wage and how much support can be provided? You know, should we have a tax levy for things that automate things based on the savings that they make that has to go back into the people that were previously employed? But That's who knows? And that is a big, big can of worms. And unfortunately, <laughs> we do not have time for because that's all we've got time for today, folks. Thanks for listening to That's What I Call Science. We love bringing you science and technology related content and hope you enjoyed the show. If you love the show, you can get in touch with us by searching That's what I call science or that science Taz on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter or wherever you get your podcast. If you are listening via podcast, we'd love if you could subscribe and give us a review because that really helps us reach a wider audience. My name is Neve Chapman and I'd like to thank my co-host Meredith Castles. I'd also like to thank our expert guest Sean Krasansky. It was excellent talking to you and you've got a wealth of knowledge about drones, which is awesome and it's great to see such local talent here in Tasmania and such great applications of new technology. Our show is proudly supported by Edge Radio, so head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on all of the good things that they do. 